Yeah, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. I'm really glad you're joining us today. I have Adam Sandman, the CEO and founder of Inflecta Corporation, which is a tool testing, project management software company. He has a really amazing background. He is an expat here in the US from the UK. And I was joking, reason I used to be an expat to where most of his countrymen tend to be an expat in Spain, Southern Spain, but he chose to come join us here. I'm just really excited to have you here, Adam. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, AJ, for having me on the show. It's my pleasure to be here today and hopefully have some good conversations and be great to you know, hear your questions and also just share some of the journey and the, the fun and excitement I've had for the most part, fun and excitement, not always running a company <laughs> from scratch. <laughs> As a bootstrapper, I know that lovely fun and excitement sometimes is after the fact, <laughs> not always in the moment, <laughs> but yes, I fully agree. Before we kind of get into where you are in journey, one thing I found really exciting when I was going through your background, well, two things. One, you were at Sapient about the time I, back before the first really big dot-com crashed and the first dot-com boom, that ni late 98 through 99 to the early 2000 where it just dropped. I had interviewed there and I turned down a role at Sapient to go to some crazy roll-up wannabe, whatever it was. And I had an amazing year traveling around the world, but then it blew up. But you were at Sapient where they expanded a little bit too much, but they didn't go under and they really did well. So that's kind of cool that you were there during that boom slash crash era. Right. It was interesting to be there. And that was my first job out of college. It really informed some of the decisions I made starting the company, so which I'll get to later. But well, I'd come on a vacation in 97. And this was the time, as, as you mentioned, the dot-com boom. So one of the great things was everyone was talking about technology, web. You know, Everyone and their grandmother wanted to know about what's this thing called Java? It's, is, what is this web thing? And so my first job in America, I, was, I had a J-1 visa for three months just to come to America, was to help people set up their dial-up internet. So it used to dial up. And I was in the North Shore of Boston. And a one-man company that I worked for at the time, his business was providing local dial-up for people in the North Shore that weren't served by AOL or CompuServe or any of the big companies. There he, so in those days, you had to have an area code that people could dial into. It was free because that's how people would ISP. get it. Yeah. And yeah. The, the 508 area code in the North Shore of Boston was one of the ones that, that the big companies had skipped. So his business model was to create a, a niche, was to cover that area code. And so over the summer, I did tech support, called people up and said, your DNS settings have to be changed. Click in this, click in that, do this. And it was during that time that I met someone at Sapient, called a friend of a friend of a friend, actually a friend through a family. And he got me an interview there. And I got a visa to come over here in, in the late, in the yeah, January 1998. And I think it was an opportune okay, time cool. because... Yeah. It was a time when America was you know, calling out for people to come here and, and work in technology. So it was much easier to get a visa. Now it's much more difficult. And it was an exciting time because we were literally building the internet in front of people's eyes, including our own. And Sapient was involved with some of the crazy ones, like I think it was startup.gov. If you've watched that movie, they're in there. eToys, a bunch of those early dot-com pioneers. Sapient was a supporting actor helping to build. But one of the things that was interesting about Sapient, it was actually a bootstrap company. So it was founded in 91. 
and it had very strong core values. And unlike some of the other companies that you may have you mentioned, they were bootstrapped until they never took VC money. And one of the things they did during the dot-com boom was they kept their portfolio of companies. Only like 30% could be startups. The other 70% had to be banks, energy companies. So I think whether the storm, as you mentioned, because they had good values and the leadership had made a plan that they wanted to be around for the long term and they weren't chasing the hot money. And so that's actually one of the reasons when I started Inflectra, to be bootstrapped and not chase the hot money that I think VCs have a tendency to do maybe without generalizing. And in any industry, there's, you know, there's, there's, lots, there's pros and cons to raising money. And well, the one pro I think of doing it in a bootstrap way is you can do things at your own pace and in your own way. And if you fail, you fail. But ultimately, it's, it's your decision, not someone else's. I've always found you can be more flexible in how you deliver. Yes, sometimes you don't get the rocket ship ride, but the nice part is you're not relying purely on a very finicky fuel source to get the rocket ship. You're right. building upon what you believe and what the customers are willing to pay directly for, not what you hope. And look, every business model has its pros and cons, but it really is fun looking at it. And I think a lot of us who've gone through the dot-com crash and saw that experience, I think we've brought it into our business in how we structure things and the type of clientele we look for. And when we build, when we do build, I mean, Kind of jumping to Inflecta, you've been running this since 2006. Where do you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days? Oh, <laughs> that's a long question. I mean, I would say that we're on the beginning of the next phase of our journey. And so just to sort of give a little bit of, I guess, background, I think we, we're, we've had four stages of the company. There was the startup the phase when I first founded the company, the survival phase. And I started the company part-time. I actually left Sapien in 2005, 2006. I only, the only place I'd worked. And I really wanted to build a company, but I also had young children and I wanted to start a company part-time. So I started it part-time for the first couple of years. And it was a lifestyle business till probably 2012, maybe 13, maybe a little bit around that time. And then at that point, uh, I decided I wanted to grow the company. My kids were older, I had more time. And also the product market fit was such that I felt there was an opportunity that would be left if it was just a, a side business. And that's when we started hiring some people to professionalize our sales and marketing. You know, I wasn't going to be the only developer doing it on the side. It was going to be a team. And then I think that led to our growth phase. And then in the last two or three years, we're now moving into the global phase where instead of trying to do it all from the United States, we're now really focusing on how we grow at the next level um, and taking some of the lessons from the books, Good to Great and Built to Last, which actually Sapien had introduced me to yeah. and adopting that methodology of the right people on the bus, you know, and also having the right people in the right countries. And we've now really globalized the company. I think 40% of our work of our team now is outside the US. We've got people who are doing pre-sales in Ireland and the UK and Australia and places. So we're in the beginning of the going global next growth phase piece of, of the company. So I would say it's also the other thing I would say is we've moved from founder-led sales and founder-led stuff to where I'm much more of a supporting <laughs> yes. person. And that can be challenging because people have used to come to me for everything. And now I have to say, no, no, that's not my responsibility. With you know, I'm happy to be there as an escalation or supporting point, but really you need to go to person X and Y. And you don't want to un unintentionally undermine your team members because if people have come to you, you don't want to say no to them. But on the other hand, I don't want to for do an end around my managers, people who I'm you know, supporting and guiding to be that next level in the company. That is a great position to be in as you look at it. And let's maybe take a quick step back because you referenced in that founder-led everything. Yeah, it was like, oh, I was the sales. I was the developer. Yeah, right. being that to then... What was that transition like for you? Was that when you decided to make it full-time or was it after you it became a full-time entity? 
How did that transition go for you? What was that sort of? That's a good point. I mean, I went full-time relatively early. So I think by 2008, nine was during my full-time job, but it was still in a small team, like four people. So a few years before you brought, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I started to bring in more people to do the specific jobs. But even so, for a lot of the, de- the particularly on the sales side, I kind of got out of some of the dev and the support side more quickly. But on the sales side, the challenge is always is as the owner and founder, you will always be the best salesperson. The clients have this sense. They know somehow that you're more vested. And so it's quite difficult, especially when we, we always from day one had a global audience. So we always have people, you know, from every country in the world because internet marketing, right? People can buy software from any country and we buy say no to them. So it was sort of the danger was you're working around the clock, but as you start to bring people in, what happens is you sort of fill in the gaps in the other places that you don't have people. So you have people in the US to do a demos and do pre-sales. Well, now you're doing, I'm doing more European stuff because we don't have someone. So and then I do more Australian stuff. So wrecks your life. But to get to the point where it's completely, you're not in any of it, that takes many, many cycles of that. And getting it right, knowing the right type of people to hire. I think as an entrepreneur, hiring salespeople, it can be very difficult because you need to understand the sales process. And when you're the entrepreneur, you understand it at an intuitive level. You understand, I, I got this product, I designed it, I've thought of it. I can take you from talking to you, doing a discovery call, doing a demo, closing the deal. I don't even know what these phases are, but I know I can do them. Yeah. And now you've got to bring in people. And for the most part, you want to professionalize it so that the person who's doing the demo may not be the same person scheduling it. Maybe it is. And if and someone who's a salesperson that you bring on, with a Rolodex, that's a lead gen person. And I wasn't sophisticated enough to know that's not what we needed. We have plenty of lead gen through Google and yes. through SEO. We need someone to do demos. That's a very different skill set. That's a technical skill set. And so I think it took us many years to find the right people, many false starts and hiring some wrong people. And so I think to anyone listening to the call, I think you need to define your sales process differently before you start hiring people because otherwise what you'll do is you hire people like you or you hire people who are they call themselves salespeople, but that may or may not be what you need in your particular moment in that particular phase i 100 percent agree i chased expensive sales people for years until i was like this is never working you know the only thing that seems to be working is when i start moving some of my junior people up to help me do the follow-up and then it was like predictable revenue was i came across yeah yeah and some people it's out of date and it's a little bit heavy on pounding phone calls and stuff whatever but it was like oh a process and i and as an analytics person i was like oh i can isolate each step and then lo and behold we figured out and find out which steps you are but and some step you will continue to do for a while and that's okay and what gives you the most leverage like if if i can do a a complex difficult poc proof of concept kind of demo for our product and i may still do that now whereas if it's going to be a basic demo other people can do that and that way i'm leveraging my time better and and their time better than trying to hire someone to do something that's inappropriate for the company's phase and growth stage and just to go off quickly, it lets you also figure out how to grow your people. It allows you to figure out gaps because you can see how well things are going once you understand, oh, there are segments and there are ways to measure different pieces. So yeah, I love that you had that experience. Well, as you've done that and you're now looking to go further, it seems, you know, what's funny is as an expat who seems that you've had a more international approach and I think many Americans I love my country, but it seems like you have a small segment of America that's like, hey, check out this amazing world. And then a much larger part that's like, you mean the people over there in the next town over? That's true. A lot of people I've heard start using this phase, um, the business mullet, which is Americans for client-facing roles and then international for back office. And 
it's like, okay, it's cute and it's funny. And I get the point now where a lot of people are like, oh, if we have remote cultures and stuff like that, we can have talent anywhere. But I think it misses the point. It seems from a very early that you started bringing in international one because of your background, but two, also from the type of clientele you were going after. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess, you know, we started the business, we did, we launched with using search advertising. So our first, for those starting a company oh, back cool. in yeah. 2006, it was much easier. You know, our competitors like HP, <laughs> they were not spending money on search ads. So you could, you could basically undercut all these big companies. Now, of course, they're all in the game now. They're all doing SEO. They're writing blogs. And yeah. it's much, much harder. There are some tricks and tools like instantly we're starting out using, which are still new for AI-driven email. There's some, still some cool stuff, mm-hmm. but the level, the flame yeah. field is much more level than it was maybe back then. So as a result, though, when you start doing online advertising, you get leads from all over the world. And I guess you have two decisions. We could have said, we're only going to advertise in the US and we're only going to focus on the US. But we didn't because I think there was less competition over keywords. We actually ended up having a bigger European business than an American business at the beginning. Now it's, we're about 50% US, I think 35% Europe, 40% Europe. And we're trying to grow Asia Pack. That's our weaker area, LATAM. Those are our weaker areas. There's challenges there because of purchasing power and, a- and Asia time zones can be challenging. But it, we're using our, our partner network to do that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. That's a good thing I think a lot of people underestimate is a partner network. But I think we decided to do global from day one. And I guess being British, I think coming from Europe, it didn't seem that much of a lift. And then we had a partner in Germany and then things like GDPR came along, which were difficult, but also gave us an opportunity to differentiate ourselves around privacy and security, which has been a differentiator. The other thing I found is interesting. If you're an American company in America, you're one of you know, hundreds and thousands and in your industry, you're one of a hundred. In Europe, Europeans perceive for the most part, and certainly outside of Europe, even more so, they perceive American tech to be better. Right, you're wrongly they perceive it. So in the same way, if you go buy an Audi A4 or a BMW or Mercedes, you will perceive that as being better than a, you know, haters on the the call, a Ford or a GM. But it may not be true, but that's the perception. And the same thing is true in tech. American tech is considered number one. And so if you go compete against a European firm, uh, you've got a much higher chance of winning. And if you are then an American firm and you've hired a a local salesperson as the front office, flipping your model, the front office is actually local and the back office is American. You actually have the strongest vision of all because you're seen as having innovative tech, but also local sensibilities. And it's not that hard yeah. to do. I would give a shout out to one of the companies we've been using called Papaya. They're a PEO firm. Yeah. They let you hire other people in other countries legally with all the pensions and all the rules. And as a small company, it lets you scale globally in a way that I think 10 years ago would have been harder for us. Glad you called out because I'm actually looking at Papaya for my team. So oh. that's pretty neat. <laughs> I right. looked at I looked at three. I looked at Deal, Papaya, and one other one, I forget. And I like Papaya yeah, the deal, most. Yeah. And I would recommend Papaya. Anyone on this call, they've been done a great job. We've got people in France, UK, Ireland, and Canada. We're going to do Australia. And I have no hesitation with using them. As you look to this world where you're now supporting one, the cracks, but also more supporting the people who are moving things forward. What's helping you? Are you using coaching, reading? What is helping you kind of become the transition point from the doing to that support and crack and finger finger sticking? <laughs> Three or four years ago, I was very lucky. I went to a DC tech event, it's a local meetup, mm-hmm. and I met a local DC area coach. His name is Glenn Hellman. He was known as Mr. Cranky okay. for a while. He had a blog and he does executive oh, coaching. That. And he has a two models and we kind of I kind of part of both one is he has a group that I'm part of where you other CEOs who are non-competitive and we meet once a month but then he also does one-on-one coaching as well so we do a combo I do a combination of that 
And then I think what really helped recently is that I've been doing that for three or four years now, and that's been really helpful. And he would go through and rate how's the business this month and help me figure out the things I didn't know yet because he's, he's started several companies mm-hmm. and sold them. And that was really helpful around some of these transition points. The other thing is I recently had my two co-leaders, the three of us who run the company, my CTO and CRO, and then myself, I've had them join, had one-on-one coaching with him as well. And that's now to grow them. And then we brought on another level of people under them so that I'm sort of being coached to help manage them and they're being coached to manage the next level. And I think that's really helped because it gives all three of us a place we can talk privately, confidentially, and discuss what we're worried about. And this, and Glenn is very good at not disclosing to each other what we're talking about because it might be each other. It's an interesting thing that you're talking about coaching your team because I sold my business back in early 2014 and there was a little bit about coaching you know, structure and I had worked with some really good coaches, but the general conversation was how do you manage is the company gets bigger and does all the stuff and you know, that top down. And there were some approaches to the bottom up approach and the employees first, but that was much, much smaller, at least in the noise I was hearing. But I am very interested that I have heard in the past year a lot about the benefit, not of managing your teams, but of coaching your teams. And it's, you know, in the vocabulary you're using here in that approach, yes, you still have to do long-term directive strategy, You still have to provide the resources and sort of cohesive morale, but it seems that coaching is having a big impact on how you move your team forward. That's a really good point. I think we've always had a fairly decentralized culture and intentionally so. One of the experiences I had before I left Sapien, actually, well, one is Sapien was quite good at that. They were, for the most part, were not a top-down culture. Obviously, things have to be top-down as a public company. But my last engagement before I left Sapien was with the U.S. Marine Corps. And the U.S. Marine Corps is a fabulously decentralized leadership at every level organization. And I learned a lot from how they do things. But their model is that you don't tell people how to do something. You tell them what needs to be done. Let Give them the tools to do it. Help them get there. And if they make mistakes, you, you within reason, you know, fail safely and let them forgive them. And actually, I was a Boy Scout leader as well. And that's also yes, the same concept in scouts. Yeah, you let people fail safely. You know, I went to Goshen Scout Camp, and we had many, many of the, you know, these 17 or 18 year olds who are leading and all the younger scouts. And they would come to you and how do I do this? How do I do that? And as adult leaders, you were told not to help them. Let them figure it out and then the, 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 and help them when they, if the, if the leaders came to you, fine. You would not tell them what to do. And it can be quite hard. And let them try it out and fail, especially because in so many activities that kids do these days, they're very directed by adults. It was a nice opportunity to have, it be much more youth driven, as they call it. And so I would say yeah. try to transfer that to a company setting, having it be team driven as opposed to management driven. It's not that different. Again, there are times when you have to, for safety reasons or financial reasons, cash flow, whatever it is, you may have to step in. You're not abrogating your leadership and managing, but that shouldn't be your first answer uh, to a problem if possible. No, it's sort of leadership by growth, you know, a growth of the t- culture and the team and the individuals. Inherently, everything we do, especially in building, is about the quality of our talent that works with us and the reasoning why, given if we can help them grow, you know, especially these days. If you can plug in, people can figure a way to work for companies around the world. So, Or they don't need companies to work for. They can independently. So the idea is if you can give them the growth that helps them on their journey, you're just aligning them better. Yeah, you're right. Remote working, having remote teams has definitely changed that. People look for more community amongst each other, but also they want more autonomy. It's different. And you have to teach people. You can't just walk around. I used to often want to say, just walk when I was a manager there, walking around the room and just chatting with people. And that was one of my management styles. My style too. 
And if yeah. you read the Marriott way, that was Bill Marriott Jr. He, you know, he would go around all the hotels and meet everyone. Well, in a remote culture, that's not economically feasible. You, you can't go to someone's house and start walking around their desk. So it's <laughs> tricky. It's, it's trickier, right? So how do you, do you have that indirect culture of management where you basically want to feel the vibe, understand what's going on without being on top of people? remotely and i don't know if we figured that out yet that's that's a hard part and i think that's what's interesting because getting rid of an office when i sold we had an office manager we had gotten be big that had a lot of body we had a lot of people but we didn't have the cash flow and the, to also have infrastructure so it was like we were still almost all frontline deliverable from an agency point of view but it was like okay the wi-fi went down that's my job. Yeah, we had an office manager. Yeah, the coffee machine, you know, does it. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. And now, of course, the person who went from like the easy deasy Couric that we could do it to like the super machine that could do 20,000 things and, of course, got dirty five times faster and had all the more. That was my choice. So it is was my fault. But those were the things that, going to a remote culture kind of is nicer. I have my own infrastructure at home. <laughs> but yes, it is so, that like, how do you then talk? Yeah, it's interesting. So scaling with low infrastructure is something we've tried to do more of. And so we have an office here in Silver Spring and we have people in the DC area, which is our headquarters. We have people in New York and Boston and Argentina and Canada and other places and other time zones. So for the most part, people in the DC area come in once a week on a Thursday. So we try and maintain that in-person culture. Nice. We do happy hours, yeah. we do lunches, and we have a coffee machine, but it doesn't wear out as fast. And then other people come in during the week. Some people come in three days a week. Some people come in that, that only that one day, particularly those in Virginia because of the Beltway. And then once a year, we bring the entire company together for our actual <laughs> fest. So we flew everyone in from all over the world for a week and we've done it twice now we'll do it again hopefully next year and that's pretty neat we get a week here and that's actually bigger than our oh, office nice. we can't fit everyone so we, we rent a, another space in Silver Spring uh, and then we do dinners and we do various team building activities we also did some stuff around the company culture and, and the uh, core values we did some exercises from Built to Last around preserve the core if you've read the book and stimulate growth we took a lot of the information from the book about how we're going to grow and made it made it and had people present back to us with these drawings of how they saw the company growing and their ideas and we broke them into teams so it was very much a sapient workshop actually to give credit to sapient there and I think that was really helpful for our culture and helped us expand but then I think beyond that our infrastructure is quite light we've gone cloud first so we've got rid of all of our servers mm -hmm. we've got we've got, a, we've got a cloud VPN people have their own Wi-Fi so for the most part we ship laptops people so in that sense the office manager role we don't really have we actually we're going to hire an office manager and we said we don't need it i mean for the office here we can take the you know i can do some of it the other people can take turns just people you know the water comes it's not as complicated as it used to be where you have to have six offices in you know different countries in different cities or we do a we work if uh, you want something collaborative too well if they stay in business but yeah 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 or, mean... or we work or similar regas <laughs> or you know spaces yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah i was in regas back in the day you know when i was first starting my last company but yeah i mean I fully agree because I remember we had gotten to three offices and it really was like, all right, if you have a good office manager, that office would go fine. And not because of the people there, but literally because of all the extra secondary stuff where nowadays that's all, you know, it's like, are there lights? Is there heat? Is there internet? You know, everything else is a button, you know, is a screen, is a service. It is interesting doing it. I, I love that you're, when you talk about building the culture, is this something like from your coaching? Is it a structure on the culture? How did this evolve? Like, where did this come in? You know, you have this hybrid environment, you have a global team. 
but you're doing these things to kind of work on the culture and move it. What was sort of that movement towards like, okay, we're doing more hybrid. We have to keep our international aligned, you know, our teams internationally aligned. How did that evolve? I mean, organically, it wasn't like we planned it. You know, the pandemic happened and, and we had to have virtual meetings. And then some people lost their jobs who we'd known from before. And we thought, well, we need somebody. This guy's a good guy. He's in Brazil. We hire him. He moved to Canada. We still like him. So we moved, he went to Canada and we kept hiring him. <laughs> and then things like Papaya made it easier to bring people on. It wasn't super intentional. We just had people we liked. And then we knew we needed people in earlier time zones because of the sales stuff. And so that was something that was more intentional. We need to have people to do in, in Europe. Uh, we have customer it's support. Spicy, we need, yeah. yeah, we need to provide customer support in the early morning. Or we could have people work nights or we could hire someone in Europe, which is more sane and which is more culturally aligned, hiring someone in Europe. And also it just makes more sense for us to grow a team there anyway and so i think it didn't it wasn't like we planned that part of the culture that really just evolved the global piece the culture was more intentional we always had the culture we had spent a lot of time even when we were a smaller company working on it defining it our last offsite we, with the company we talked about it do we change it is it is it are they the right values do we still agree with them and for the most part people thought they were still the right ones and that we had a discussion and a presentation about that for people and we do hire but we hire to that when we interview people we interview them both from a skill fit but a core value fit when we look at how we do business we try and align our business practices with our values one of our values is called build for users not for wall street uh, build for customers not for wall street and the idea is we want to be around for the long term build things that the customers find useful even if it may be against the grain of where the industry has gone and a classic example would be many of our competitors are going cloud first only to the cloud because a lot of the investors are saying anything that's not cloud or you know it's, it's not subscription revenue we don't want that uh, yet many of our customers want to stay on premise because they're in security in high security industries and so that's differentiated we don't have to follow the crowd and the herd in doing that. And that's one of the values that we believe in is important. If our customers want something, and then things like one of them is also like no drama. Another really important core value of ours is called Second Acts. It's trying to find people who might have not gotten into the workforce and bring them in. And we actually have some people who didn't weren't in technology and we helped them transition into a career in technology or into marketing or into sales. Yeah. And also some people who didn't go to didn't go to four, four year college but had finished high school and were programmers, but they're really good programmers. Like, well, that's fine. And so I think, yeah. especially in DC, which is a very credentialed city, we could find people who fit the pattern, but had the skills and had the culture. And so, we, you know, that's more important to us than necessarily things on paper. Did that come out of, because I like that approach and I do believe that's becoming more prevalent, but did that come out of, because DC, I have noticed is a very, for when you look at companies that say, we need X, Y, and Z, it's very competitive. But when you have a more flexible approach, did it come out of necessity? Or did it come out of just like, this looks like the right way of going? How did that kind of... I think it's 100% both. I mean, we're a small company and we're going to compete against Lockheed Martin and Northrop and, you know, who're going yeah. to hire programmers out of college. We also had some people though who'd, uh, in our leadership team who had done that. And I actually had done that at Sapien. I wasn't a, a CS major. I was a physics grad, but I'd done programming as a hobby. They were willing to overlook that. So that helped. I think it was being from our own experiences internally, but also the fact that it allowed us to hire people that maybe wouldn't have been hired by the other guys. And so we weren't necessarily competing with the same labor pool. And we've tried some other things as well. In Argentina, we've helped some people use our products and given them away for free to build some people there. And so we're trying to find ways that we can find un underserved parts of the community who aren't in technology. Because if you look at a typical tech team, they often go to the same schools, they do the same thing. And you know they all went to University of Maryland, if they're in Maryland, mm -hmm. they all went to UVA or Virginia Tech, and they've all with the same yeah. CS classes <laughs> together. It's, it's a homogeneous group. So can we find people who don't necessarily fit that? That, as well as people from that group. It's not like we, you know, we're not saying no, but we, it winds up all, yeah. which helps us. Very cool. Now, and you don't have to tell us where you are in revenue. Yeah, the money, even though we're talking about how to go beyond, beyond eight figures, 
as a thing. To me, it's this aspirational concept as entrepreneurs. This is like, I did hear someone recently say, well, you're only a real entrepreneur if you go past nine figures. I was like, well, God damn it. <laughs> um, excuse my language, folks. But um, oh, well, I guess I've been playing tiddlywinks here. But as you look to whatever that next big transition point is, you know, you're positioning here already. You were talking about this. You mentioned earlier you are transitioning for the next phase, your fourth phase. What is it that you think is going to help you? Like, what are the things you're doing now to get to that next big transition phase? Okay, that's a great question. And I do have a, there's a good answer for that one because it's something we're investing heavily in. It's just not yet paid off, but we believe it will. It's an investment. It's really our partner strategy because one yeah, of the things we, earlier, yeah. yeah, and that's so it's great. You, I, I hadn't quite gotten to it. So it's just good that you brought, your, you brought that back up because I think that is the next phase. So up until now, to get to our current scale, it's been 90% direct sales. We do have partners and they do bring deals to us and it's great. And we do have resellers do help process transactions for large companies where they're required. But we haven't had a systemic partner program. And about two years ago, we had a director of global alliances and we've now had a partner manager. And we've been building this program for the past couple of years. And it takes this, this long. And it, it takes longer because... You have to not really, if you're selling to a customer, first of all, you sell the customer once and you get the deal. That's it. When you sell to a partner, you might sell to the partner and they're now a partner. Then they've got to sell to their customers. So it's another, it takes a year longer to get anything, any revenue. The second thing I would say is more difficult with a partner is if you sell to a customer, you've got to solve their need. If you're going to sell to a partner, you've got to sell to 40% of all their customers' needs. And that means you have to do it better than some other tool that they're looking at or using or might be using. So it's a much more differentiated yeah. business. You have to be much better at your job to sell to them and or find some large clients that are big enough that will entice the partner. But the benefit then, if you can start to transition from 100 from this 90% direct sales to a smaller percentage of being direct sales, basically, as I say in the military, a force multiplier. Because we only have a, you know, we have a sales team of maybe six or seven people around the world total. We could double that, obviously, but that's expensive. Yeah. And, you know, that's a big investment that may or may not pay off. And they don't necessarily have the relationships. Whereas if you can hire have a partner network, that allows you to, you know, one partner could sell at any given year five or six deals and you have 20, 30 yeah. partners. Those are the small ones. The big ones could do more. It's a way to force multiply your message. And also, if you're selling to a, to a big company, they're hearing from you. But if you're partners, that's, you, you know, talking about you to you, it creates this groundswell of, of people knowing about you and you seem a player. It makes the sales process and everything, brand building much easier. So the partner program, I think for us, is one of the key levers that will propel us to that next level because trying to get to you know, a nine-figure through organic sales is very difficult. I think you have to have some kind of partner program. I think that's for us is what will give us... It, will be, it takes longer in the short term, but once it starts to build this flywheel of momentum, that's where I believe we'll move us forward to that next stage. It is really interesting because I've worked with my own businesses and then clients I work a lot. There's this like, initially it's sort of trench warfare, relationship sales, you know, whoever will respond to you, friend of friends type of stuff, but it's generally very much that concept of inbound. And I generally believe the transition of that mid piece, that two to five, whatever the range is, generally happens when you move from beyond that generalized inbound, good relationship structure, to having your own direct and only having approach date, not having cross. I've heard other people start talking about partnership and other structures. So it's, you're once again going to a more loose deal flow, but you're going to a strong, you know, to get to that point, you've had to have a stronger one, who you are, what you do, and a stronger customer avatar so your partners can better target and increase it. So it is kind of cool right, that like- right. It's that like, I always love those things like, 
do nothing. Yeah, the beginner does nothing. The middle does like everything. And then, yeah, the expert is once again in that do nothing piece. In a sense, and I know there's not, there's tons, there's a lot more work into a partner structure having supported other people. But it is that funny route where it's like, you go from hope to, you know, structured will to once again, structured hope. Yeah, right, right, end. right. There's definitely a phase where, like, anyone we can be at a conference, every part, potential partner, let's talk to them, let's just try and get meetings. And it can be difficult. And especially because a lot of these partners, they have to justify spending time with you, not someone else, whereas a client doesn't think that way. And also, they have a relationship with other companies that already are selling into your same segment. Yeah. And I think the last one is, is also, you've got to find the right size of partner. Without mentioning names, we've talked to some of the very large SIs system integrators, and we're too small for them. They work with the public companies. They work for the competitors that are doing, you know, six, seven billion in revenue a year. And that's the scale they operate at. But you can find smaller companies that are competitors with these SIs, and they want someone that's going to differentiate them to the clients against the big SI. So they're willing to work with you because you will be a force multiplier for them in the same way that they are for you. Because instead of them competing on a service engagement, well, doing the exact same thing as everyone else, they've got a tool that they can provide that maybe has got a higher ROI or just is different. It's a differentiator for them. But if you go to a big SI, they'll be like, we don't need you. We've got these 10 public companies that we do, you know, Microsoft and others. We do everything with them. And that makes sense because that's, that's how their that's how their tool, their tool for those very big tech companies. Okay. Is there anything else other than partner networks that you're kind of hoping is going to have a big impact on your move forward? Yeah. The other thing is actually, uh, first of all, having the people, uh, uh, the direct sales in APAC and that, um, we've been always been strong in Europe. We've always been strong in North America, building APAC and APAC LATAM. Is, LATAM is more difficult because of currency, but, APAC, but but still, it's interesting. A lot of the companies we talk about in North America or Europe have offices and teams in that South America, bank, HSBC Bank, yeah. Citibank, Pan America, all those stuff. Well, yeah. Yeah. Telecom companies from Europe uh, are there. So having a global presence lets us build relationships between those different regions. That will, That's helping a lot too. And, and I think LATAM and APAC are still in their early, they're maybe three or four years behind the rest of the company. So that's an area where we've invested over two years and haven't yet got the growth. The third area is actually more interesting. You mentioned it, direct sales. We were doing a lot more inbound. Uh, we're relaunching, trying to be more selective around our outbound approach. Uh, we've tried various things and it's been very difficult with the pandemic. No one answers their phone. No one checks, you know, text messages anymore. We're trying a platform called Instantly, which is, looks very interesting. It's an AI-driven cold email platform so it's like the next generation after zoom info and Apollo and all these tools that people probably use already and we're going to try and do that as well so trying a lot of different things but the partnerships and the cold emails are the yeah. two systematic approaches plus a bunch of bunch of trade shows i'm going to dubai in a few weeks i'm going to california oh, nice. australia so that's fun that's the fun side right before i sold i got invited to do something and i was like ah, i'm in the middle of selling and I haven't been to Dubai since the 90s and it's like, and everyone, it's like, it's another planet is what I've heard. So I really do want to get there. So that's very cool. You're going. But I think also, you know, especially as you grow with your partner sale, the great thing about really focusing on your direct is it allows you to get the type of clients because partners as yes, their structure and you try and find the right partners. So they, it's still a little ad hoc of the type of clients that come in through them. While you direct sale, you can be very specific on, okay, great. We're generally aligned here, but you know, we want to get a little bit more here. So you can be that much more specific on your client growth, or at least your attempt. Yeah. One other thing that we're doing a big work on this, this second half of the year, which is going to help all those factors is messaging. Uh, you mentioned earlier on, as you get more mature, you start to really hone your messaging. And I think we have not done as good a job of, of that until recently. And so we're, not, we're actually doing a job to really define our ideal customer and narrow it down to we really understand that at a much greater level of clarity, 
This is in part to help with the customer sales, but also what we're finding is as, as the world gets more complex online, there's so many more blogs. You know, if you're using ChatGPT to write blogs, you have to be much more targeted in your messaging, even just globally and even just for direct sales. So messaging has become, I think, a much more important thing to have well-defined. And that's something we're actually going to be working on to really hone that which I think will make all the other channels more efficient too. Very cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's one I tell clients the most. And it's like, the more work we can put on defining who, the better things are going to go. But it's the one that as my own effort, yeah, as my own cobbler efforts, I'm like, if they pay us, that's good. And it's like, no, you got to kind of get out. Yeah, I realized four or five years into my last business, it was like, all right, that's holding us back. The more I finally said, nope, we're not doing that. We're only going to do X. It was like, oh, we're growing faster. Yeah. So it's counterintuitive, right? You think, yeah, yeah. you think, oh, we're going to have a smaller client base because we'll have a smaller target window, but it doesn't work that way somehow. Nope. Somehow you just become that much more knowledgeable. So that is really cool that you're moving into that. Those are three things that I think really do flow well together. And I do think given the structure and the platform where you are, I think that will help you a lot. As you look forward into the distance, it seems you have very strong understanding of what success looks like for the business. But you've talked about you're a scout master for your children, your children are in university, they've gone off, they're older. Do you have definitions of what success is going to look like for you separate from the business? Oh, that's the hard question my coach always talks about every month. And, and, it, and I'm probably the worst at that because I'm probably a workaholic. Well, I, I think you, you mentioned earlier on, maybe before the call in our earlier conversation was you want to leave the world a better place you want to leave things better than you found mm-hmm. them that's a scout motto i think that's what's always yeah. driven me even when i started the company so i think that's the lodestar that's the direction now what does that mean longer term now at some point ultimate success will be you know take the company public and that would be great but you know <laughs> if that's only one outcome i guess what i wouldn't want to do is ro- let the company be brought into a roll-up where the mission and the vision is destroyed and all, and all the value and all the loyalty that people put in us is, is thrown away. So between those two extremes, somewhere in there, I think is where I would like, to, like it to be. So I feel like we, we left the world a better place, the, the company, all the product, all the, and the team, you know, obviously will change over time, but it itself wasn't for nothing. It wasn't just something that got bought and then discarded by another company. And then it had me, you know, we, in our lives, we look for meaning. And, and I think everyone who works for companies as well as a paycheck ultimately looks hopefully for meaning. And, you know, you, you're going to spend many hours of your life working for somewhere you want it to have meaning. So I think I've always looked for that. And so at some point you'll, you'll know when the right time is to sell something or do something different. And, but it's not like I'm actively looking to get out of it. One of the things that helps, I think, is my kids are older. I have more time. My wife and I have time together and we, I can work at the business. I've gotten better trying to manage my time. So I'm not quite working so much. I make time for my wife. Uh, we go away for weekends and things. So I think and my coach has been good at helping me with that too. And that's one of the things about having a coach is that a business coach or an executive coach isn't there to coach you just about the company. It's also to coach you about you as a person and how to make sure you are sustainable with your own life. And I would say Glad has been very good at that. And uh, he has coached me on you know, going away for weekends. When, you, when your kids go to university, make, you know, you'll need to plan on these things because you'll be the two of you again. And that's been quite a hard transition is to go from a family of four to a family of two. Um, it's been 20 something years since we had that. And that's sort of weird. Yes. And I'm going through this thing where my son is going off next week to St. Andrews. And it literally is like stuck in my head. You know, the moment that I held him right after he was born. And it's like pretty much 24 seven for 18 years now, you know, over 18 years. And all of a sudden now it's like, oh, and yes, he's already become this amazing human being. He 
worked all summer as a counselor and like I was the one who was like, oh no, I can't. And he was like, you know, having the best time ever of his life. <laughs> it is just, yeah, growing and letting those things happen and preparing for just what it means as both as entrepreneurs, but as our our lives go on and our families evolve and grow. Yeah. And I guess you, you still have some in high school as well. So I have two more. My middle child is a senior this year. So she goes next year. The youngest one is in just our middle school. Okay. So a few more years. Yeah. Five more years. Of, you know, so we get, yeah, but hopefully we don't over baby her <laughs> into right, like, right. Oh, don't leave. But you know, we're trying to, you know, let them have their independence also, you know, and let them grow, even though we're now like, no, don't change, change. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mine are both gone, but it, it, they come back, they visit, it, it, but it is different. And I think one of the things I would say is plan for it, plan for them leaving and make yeah. sure you spend time to rediscover your relationship with your spouse uh, outside of the kids. Cause you, it's been a project for, for yeah. in my case, it was 23, I think the two of them combined 23, 24 years. And to go from that to something different is different. And, and in the same way that you had kids, you baby proof the house, you changed everything and everything changed in an instant. It's a little bit slower, but it does change. And you have to sort of plan to rebuild, find things to do together and stuff. So I would tell them, or whatever it is with your life, you know, it's a different phase and like a business and you've got to plan for whatever that looks yeah, like. Plan for that phase. Well, Anna, thank you so much. I really can't wait to see what Inflected is and what you're able to lead it for because you gave such great advice and such great insight into this experience as an entrepreneur transitioning through the different stages of the business. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. I'll talk with you soon. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.